The Water Values Podcast, Session 126. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things vital. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey, and thanks so much for joining me. We've got a great show for you today. We have Gary Verdow, who uh, is a an independent rate and regulatory consultant. Uh, he does a lot of work for investor-owned utilities. In fact, he was uh, with American Water and handled rate cases in a number of jurisdictions for them uh, And before breaking out on his own. And uh, you guys really enjoyed the municipal water rates podcast. And um, I thought it would be beneficial to do an investor-owned water rates podcast because so much of investor-owned water rates are, at least that's my perception, is that it's misunderstood by the public. And I think it would be good to shed some light on that. We have Gary Verdow here to help us with that today. Uh, Quick programming note, though, before we get into it, uh, I'm going to be taking the month of June off from the podcast I'm going to have to travel for business the first week of June anyway, so I wouldn't be around my computer to try and get the uh, the episode out anyway. So I just figured it'd be a good good time for a month long break. Uh, we got great content coming up for you starting in July, first Tuesday in July, which I think might be July fourth or it's a, it's around there somewhere. Um, in any event, hope you guys have a great summer if you're in the northern hemisphere and in the southern hemisphere. Hope your winter's off to a great uh, start. Uh, with that, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts. And here we go with Gary Verdow. Well, Gary, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. You know, you uh, you were on my target list when I first started this thing four years ago, and I, I know I contacted you, but um, uh, I am glad that after four years, I finally got you on the show. So welcome. Thank you very much, Dave. I'm very happy to be on the show, finally. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, for starters, Gary, uh, could you tell us a little about your background and kind of what where where you fit in in the water space? Since that time, I had been 
promoted to manager and then director, and over my time at American Water, I ended up taking care of over um, nine different states, uh, all rates and regulatory functions for those states. Uh, when I left, uh, I just recently left uh, uh, American Water at the end of March, and at that time I was taking care of all the rates and regulatory functions in Indiana and Michigan, and I'd been taking care of Indiana rates the whole time. Uh, I was res responsible for all rate filings, all infrastructure filings, acquisition filings, um, but I really love the regulatory business. I've testified in seven different states and I've participated in regulatory functions in 12 different states over my career. And uh, now I've started a new business, Verdal Regulatory Services. I'm an independent regulatory consultant and uh, I'm available to do regulatory consulting, testifying on issues, uh, preparing rate cases and various, um, various regulatory filings in um, gas, electric and water, but concentrating in water. Got it. Got it. So, um, you know, you obviously know this, but a few weeks ago uh, we had a segment on the anatomy of the municipal water rate. Um, and, and with all your experience in the investor-owned utility space, I've, I've always wanted to kind of get in and, and dissect how investor-owned utilities set rates, you know, what the process is, because it, it differs, uh, you know, in substantial uh ways from the way municipal set it. And so uh, to start off, could you talk just a little about about how the how the IOU process differs from the municipal process? Sure. Uh, you mentioned that you had uh, you had Scott Miller from Umba on your podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about municipal rate setting. Municipals look to recover debt and debt service, day-to-day -day operating expenses, an allowance for main extensions and replacements, and po possibly payments in lieu of taxes. Um, Investor-owned or private utilities follow a slightly different format. They look to recover prudent expenses and prudent investments, their debt service, and, it, and on top of that, they look to recover a return on equity or ROE. The, on the dollars that the water utility has invested in their own system. And that's, that's kind of important. Um, uh, Investor-owned utilities spend millions of dollars on infrastructure investments. And in most cases, it's kind of like own, owning a home. You know, the homeowner owns a piece of it, the bank owns a piece of it. Uh, for investor-owned utilities, usually they, they pay for about 50% of all investments that they make in their infrastructure with their own money or their equity. And they use about 50% uh, that they pay for with debt. And that equity is how a, an investor owned makes a profit. And that's, you know, some people don't like water utilities or utilities making a profit, but that's a pretty important piece of the puzzle because if they're making a profit, they're showing the, the street that they're able to borrow money and pay it back. And when they borrow money, they can invest that in continued increased in infrastructure improvements and additions. And that makes for a safe, um, safe operating utility for their consumers and uh, ensures that they're getting good service. If, if it's a well-run utility, good service, their infrastructure needs are being taken care of and they've got clean, safe drinking water. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a we have a lot of stuff to cover today, and and I think the point you just made is very interesting um, because it, we run into it all the time where people complain about about the utilities making a profit, and in, you know, people who otherwise are big, you know, free market people who understand capitalism, but yet when it comes to drinking water, they don't like the profit motive. Uh, I, I know we have other stuff to get to, but I, I, I just v- am very curious on what your thoughts on, on uh, and experiences are with, with that kind of little piece of it in terms of, you know, why are people so upset that, that a company is making a profit for providing clean, safe drinking water? Well, there's a lot of people out there that uh, think that um, local municipalities should be owning the water. It should have local control. But I, I think as we're finding and, and as companies like Indiana and Indiana American Water and Aqua Indiana and other utilities have proven, they do provide really good, clean, safe drinking water, and they really look out for their customers. Um, a lot of that has to do with the regulation, which we'll be getting into in a little bit. But, you know, we hear in the water industry all the time that water is free, so why should I even have to pay for it? And uh, they, they fail to understand the really the millions of dollars of infrastructure that it takes to treat and provide clean, safe drinking water. Um, it's it's real easy for a customer to say, yeah, water should be free. Well, if they take a five-gallon bucket of water, which weighs about 40 pounds, and they bring it to their house and then find a way to treat it so that it's safe for them to drink and then um, have to deal with all the hassle of doing that, they find out real quick that when we, uh, as a water utility, are able to uh, provide all that infrastructure, provide safe, clean drinking water right to their tap at a cost of uh, probably around a dollar to a dollar and a half a day, um, it's a really good deal. Right, right. All right. So, so that, great answer. I just let's let's turn now to the actual regulatory process uh, in. And I'm, I'm certain that in all 50 states or in, in the majority of states, private, privately owned, uh, investor-owned utility waters, uh, utilities are regulated by a public service commission, a public utility commission, whatever the name is. Um, so could you could you kind of just paint us paint a, a picture of what does the regulatory process look like? You know who the players are. Um, you know that just kind of give us give us a flavor for what these these IOU. Uh, utilities are facing in terms of, of, of the bodies they go have to deal with when setting rates? Okay. Well, the reason um, investor-owned and private water utilities are regulated is because um, in most cases, in uh, almost all cases, util- water utilities are a monopoly in their area. They're the only show in town. And because they're the only show in town, um, they can't just come in and say, hey, we're going to raise your rates 100% today, and it happens. Likewise, they can't go to the regulatory commission and say, hey, we want to raise our rates 100% today, and the regulatory commission says, okay, go for it. You can't do that. <laughs> the, the regulatory body is there for a reason, three reasons, actually. First of all, they're there to protect the consumer. Then they're also there to protect the utility to ensure that they – are offered a fair rate of return so that they're able to attract capital necessary to invest in their infrastructure. And finally, they do it in a process, they administer the process in a way that ensures public confidence in regulators as well as in the utility. So a a typical rate case process usually takes 
four to six months for the utility to prepare, and then it takes 10 to 12 months for the regulatory body to get it approved. So in Indiana, for instance, uh, when a utility files a rate case, the parties involved are, of course, the utility and its people that they have involved in it. Um, the commission, in, in Indiana's case, it's the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission. There are five commissioners. They're appointed by the governor. Um, they usually have one commissioner that sits in on every case as the kind of the overseer of the case. They also have, the commission also has a, an attorney who op operates as an administrative law judge to be the judge in the case to set the, um, the procedural schedule and to make sure that everything is, is uh, following code. And then there are opposition uh, parties that are usually involved in a case. Uh, the Indiana Office of the Utility Consumer Counselor, which is the ratepayer advocate, they kind of look out for the little old lady at the end of the line. Uh, they get involved in cases. Um, sometimes if there's large industrial customers or municipal customers that are buying water from that utility, um, they get involved because if they increase their rates, uh, those industrials or those uh, large customers uh, or municipals that are buying water have to increase their rates too. So they have a vested interest in the case. So the process that the utility files uh, for the um, for a rate case filing, they're usually filing thousands of pieces of paper and hundreds of sets of files. Um, exhibits, uh, support for those exhibits, a revenue requirement, written testimony, and all of that entails thousands of pieces of paper. And those utilities that are regulated as a regulated utility agree to throw their books wide open and those opposing parties can ask any questions about anything uh, that they want in that case. And all that leads to a lot of transparency and ensures that the, the process is well vetted out so that it's not a rushed thing. Um, you know, customers don't necessarily like rate case increases, but they can't really argue with the process. There's a lot of ways to get involved and there's a lot of ways that they can get their say in a case. Right, right. And so let's talk about the case itself. You, you mentioned earlier, you know, reasonable and prudent uh, expenditures and um, investment. Uh, so, so can you kind of walk us through what the primary components are of, of, you know, each of those things in terms of, um, you know, the reasonable and prudent expenses, uh, depreciation, taxes, things like that? What kind of makes up the, you know, you also alluded to Scott Miller, my conversation with Scott Miller, and we talked about a revenue requirement for, for municipal utilities. So can you talk about the revenue requirement for an investor-owned utility? Sure. Let's, let me start by talking about prudent expenses and investments. Uh, and I'll give you a quick example for this. this is an example I like to use when I'm talking to our employees and, uh, about rate increases is if uh, a new person comes in as in charge of a water utility and they say, um, hey, I love all of you employees, so I'm going to immediately give you all a 100% increase in your pay, um, employees would be pretty happy about that. But if I were the one that was taking that case to uh, the utility commission for a rate increase, they would tell me, well, Gary, your utility has the right to give everybody a 100% increase in their pay, but that's not a prudent increase. A prudent increase would be more like in the lines of 2 to 3%, and we're going to allow you to recover 
two to three percent, but no more than that. So the having said that, as part of the rate case process, every single expense and every single expense line is looked at to ensure that the costs that are included in there are prudent. Pay increases, um, chemical costs, um, miscellaneous costs, they take a look at every single one of those lines to determine if those costs are actually prudent and are necessary to run a water utility. The same goes with, with investments. Every investment gets scrutinized to determine whether or not it is uh, prudent and should be done. And, you know, there's thousands of investments that are made, so they don't necessarily detail each one of them, but they could. And they usually take a look at some of the bigger investments more carefully. For instance, if a water utility was building a new water treatment plant that was necessary, and the study showed that it should be a they should design a 10 million gallon a day plant that would probably cost about $25 million, that would be a prudent investment. But if the utility decided to build a Taj Mahal water plant that would produce 25 million gallons of water a day and would cost $60 million, that wouldn't necessarily be prudent. So they would maybe allow them to recover 25 of that $60 million investment and they would strand the rest. So costs and all of the investments in, in a uh, that a water utility is including in a rate case get a very thorough review got it now um, so so can you can you kind of fill in the rest of the revenue requirement for us I mean I think that's a great explanation of um, uh, pre, you know prudent expenses and and you know pr prudent investments so so let's let's get the other half of the or other the other piece of the the revenue requirement in there <laughs> if you have four numbers, you can you can calculate a revenue requirement. The first one you need is how much your net rate base is, and what rate base is is your total investment in the system, and it's a net investment. So, in other words, uh, if you have invested a billion dollars in a water system, on the books it might be worth six hundred million dollars because it has been depreciated over time. Every one of the uh, line items in a, in a uh, rate-based calculation, all of the assets for the company have a value and they have a depreciation rate. So there's usually different depreciation rates for different items, like a computer might be three years, but a water main might be 70. And all of those depreciation rates that are being charged are also regulated by the uh, commissions, so that ensures that Utilities aren't playing games with depreciation, which can expect, which can affect expenses and affect the bottom line. So that's a good thing for consumers. But rate base includes all of your net plant, the net value of the plant that that utility owns. That's the first item that's in a revenue requirement. The second item is it's called weighted average cost of capital. Um, a utility, like I mentioned earlier, borrows money. It borrows debt to uh, invest, to make their investments in a system, and they also have equity. And in Indiana American's case, and I'll just use them because I'm most familiar with them in Indiana, their um, 
weighted average cost of capital includes about 50% debt and about 50% equity. And if, if they have $400 million in debt and the average interest rate on that debt is 6% and they have $400 million in equity, which is the piece that they own of their plant, that equity gets a value, it's called return on equity, or ROE. And uh, as you and I know, Dave, that's probably the most argued piece of any rate case is the value of that ROE. Yeah. But, but let's assume in most cases that value is somewhere between 95 and 10%. If that value is at 10% and they have $400 million in debt at 6% and $400 million in equity at 10%, the weighted average cost of capital would be 8%. So if you take the rate-based number times that weighted average cost of capital, that will determine what net income our bottom line net profit that utility should be making. From there, you take a look at revenues and expenses that are adjusted for the rate case. So present rate revenues, less present rate expenses, including taxes and depreciation and everything else to determine what the actual net operating income is. And if that actual net operating income is less than what it should be by calculating rate base times rate of return, then there's a difference and that difference is what becomes the new, what that utility should be earning for net operating income. And that number is then factored back, the taxes are calculated on it to determine how much of that is actually revenue, which gets applied to a rate increase for the customer. So four numbers, if you have those four numbers, you can calculate any rate increase and determine how much rates will be going up as a result of a rate case. Right, right. And you mentioned uh, uh, the authorized return uh, or the, the cost of common equity as the a most controversial piece of the whole process. So can you, you know, why is that? Well, the reason it is is because it's a number that drives a lot of that revenue increase. Um, and for Indiana American, for instance, in our 2014 rate case that we've, the, which is the last rate case that was filed at Indiana American, a quarter point of difference in, in the uh, return on equity drove the revenue requirement by $2.6 million. So if, if, the, if the ROE would have been 10% uh, and then instead it became 9.75%, that changed the revenue requirement to its customers by $2.6 million. So as you can see, it drives a lot of dollars. And because it drives a lot of dollars in a case, it gets a lot of scrutiny. Yeah, and so how how do we how do we figure that out? You know, what are the what are the models used to determine what what that cost of common equity ought to be? Well, there are a number of different models. Uh, there's a CAPM model. There there are various names for different models that take a look at what a return on equity should be. But normally, what it does is it tries to compare what other similar type businesses earn for a return. And most of that time, you're looking at similar type water utilities and what they're earning for a return. And um, like I mentioned, in most cases, that number for a return on equity, if you look across the country, 
is somewhere between nine and a half and 10% on average. Um, our regulatory bodies like the IORC and others can use that ROE number um, for a lot of different things. For instance, if they have a utility that is doing a lot of, they have a lot of customer complaints or they're not taking care of their valves and their meters and they have a lot of breaks and they're not taking care of their customers and customer service, sometimes the Utility Regulatory Commission can say, well, we would have given you a 10% ROE, but we're going to give you a nine and a half percent ROE because you have all these customer service issues and we're not going to look at it until you get them fixed. So a lot of times they just take a look at the numbers and come up with a number that they feel is agreeable to what that utility should be earning on average as compared to other utilities. But sometimes they can use that ROE as a trigger to get the utility to fix their system or do better. Right, right. And, you know, along those lines, you know, how does the size of the utility factor into what, you know, cost of common equity is? Are there adjustments for, you know, really big utilities versus small utilities? What are some of the other factors that can play into how cost of common equity is derived? Sometimes you will see that smaller utilities might get a little bump in an ROE because they don't have the mass that a larger investor-owned utility would have and thus they allow them to earn a little extra so that they can reinvest that in their system to the benefit of their customers. Sometimes larger utilities get a bump in an ROE because they're performing well and they're taking good care of their customers. And other reasons that larger investor-owned get bumps in ROE, for instance, in Pennsylvania, they do the Pennsylvania Utility Commission really pushes the larger water utilities to acquire some of these smaller utilities that are struggling financially and are not taking care of their system. And if they do acquire these systems, they give their larger utilities an actual bump in their ROE as a result. So they give them a reward, so to speak, for helping other customers get good water and good water service. Yeah, so I think that's an interesting point. Can you talk a little more about what are the benefits about why an investor-owned utility can acquire these smaller systems and kind of bring some expertise and bring some capital to the table that helps these smaller, more troubled systems kind of get back into compliance, so to speak? Sure. A lot of times, you know, I mentioned that we're regulated, larger water utilities are regulated by state utility commissions. Well, the smaller ones are regulated too, but they're regulated by their municipal body, and that's their mayor and their city commission. And a lot of times, mayors and city commissions don't want to invest any money in their water system because that means they're going to have to raise their rates, and they're afraid that their constituency isn't going to reelect them if they vote for a rate increase on the water system. So what happens is that a lot of these small utilities or municipalities end up neglecting their system, sort of kicking the can down the road for the next generation until they get to a point where 
when they think they should be trying to fix their system, they can't afford to do so. And at that time, they usually are looking for a partner to, to uh, take care of that, and that what, that's what leads to acquisitions of water systems. I know in Indiana, Indiana American Water has done a number of acquisitions in, uh, over the last couple of years, and they're working on some right now. But the benefit to the customer is, uh, in those small municipalities, is they, they get uh, better quality people and trained to take care of it. And I'm not saying bad things about municipal water employees, but they just don't have the depth of, of uh, knowledge and expertise that a large utility has when they're drawing from 300 or 3,000 employees. So they, they get better um, expertise in putting the system together. The, the larger utilities have better access to capital. And when you're spreading costs across 3,000 customers versus across 300,000 customers, you've got economies of scale. So the investor-owned utility that's doing the acquiring can take care of the fixes to make that system run better, and they can do it at a lower cost. And that benefits everybody. Right and right and so so w- when they acquire they they not only uh, are are going to add the the utility plant to their you know quote unquote rate base that net rate base figure you you mentioned earlier and I I, I should have asked you back then but there there are a couple different ways to to, to calculate net rate base and, or rate base and I'll I'll ask you about that in just a second but my I guess my my, bi- my bigger point is um you know in addition to getting say like a a, a uh, a bump in your cost of common equity. What are some of the other incentives that in, that can um, entice a, an investor owned to take over these smaller systems that that ha- are having these troubles? Well, like I mentioned, day one of them is economies of scale. A lot of times, uh, those systems are near um, systems that that investor owned is already owned and taken care of, so they're able to fold them into their service areas without um, much of a uh, problem and uh, a lot of times we can offer these um, small utilities uh, a lower cost for their water. Um, and I'll I'll give you an example of that. The uh, Indiana American recently uh, acquired Georgetown Water System in Southern Indiana. Their rates were over seven on average over seventy dollars a customer. And those that after the acquisition was done their system was put into Indiana American single tariff rates and their rates went down to about 35 to 40 dollars a month rather than 70 dollars a month and on top of that they were not able to invest in their system because they didn't have the capital to do it and Indiana American does and is able to go in there and fix their problems give them better safer drinking water and uh, have uh, folks that have the expertise to make those fixes for them. Right. Right. And, and, and one of the other incentives, right, is, is that uh, the investor owned has the ability to kind of bring in that rate base at whatever the acquisition cost was, to, you know, and, and I guess that, that to me is a, is a, is a pretty significant incentive because I know, you know, you and I both know Gary, that, that there've been acquisitions where uh, kind of the, um, uh, the, the rate base coming in may be argued to be uh, not, you know, it, it should be discounted. Sure. So. And, and uh, a, a lot of these small systems uh, in the past, up until about three years ago, 
Um, they had to, the only way a, a utility like Indiana American could acquire a system like that is if they paid book value for these systems. And a lot of these small systems have no book value because they've been um, depreciated a long time ago and they're not sticking any new money in it. And there's no incentive for a municipal to sell a water system, sell their water system if they can't get any money for it. And there's no incentive for a company like Indiana American to acquire it if they can't get any benefit out of it as well. So about three years ago, the Indiana legislature passed um, new laws that allow uh, acquisitions to be made at, at a fair appraised value. And that's good for everybody because it, it gives an incentive to the municipal to sell the system because they're gonna get fair market value for it. Uh, it gives the incentive to the water utilities such as Indiana American because they're getting a price, or they're paying a price for it that they can start earning a return on as part of their investments. And it, it just works well for um, all parties. It gives the mayors some money in their pocket that they can use to put into public projects in their town and improve their town uh, that they would not otherwise have. It's just a win-win for everybody. Right, right. Um, and it, it, I, I alluded to some questions about rate base that I meant to ask a while ago. Uh, so uh, in terms of getting your rate base together and figuring out what the net rate base is, there's a couple different ways to get to figure out what your rate base is. Can you just kind of talk broadly about the different ways that, that a rate base number is calculated? Well, there are a lot of pieces that make up a rate base. The, the most important pieces of it is, is your, your original cost of your plant, which is what they actually paid to get that plant in the ground or in a water treatment plant or into a vehicle or whatever. Less the value of the depreciable, uh, the depreciable value of it to come up with a net value. There are other things that play, come into play in uh, rate-based calculation as well. Uh, for instance, uh, a lot of utilities, Indiana American included, uh, get cap or investments in infrastructure that is donated to them by developers. For instance, if a developer comes in and says, I wanna build a, new subdivision and it's gonna have 300 houses and they go to the water utility and say, I want you to put all the infrastructure in for it. The water utility normally says, no, we're not gonna do that because even though you think 300 houses go in there, uh, we don't have those customers hooked up yet. So we want you to build the, the system to our specs and when you're done, we want you to give that to us. That's called donated capital. Or, and in a case where a utility has donated plant, they can't earn a return on that because they didn't pay for it. So they have to deduct that as part of the cost or as part of their rate base so that the customers that they have aren't uh, allowing them to earn a return on plant that was basically given to them. Right. And um, so, so that's one, one uh, w the, the way to, to calculate original cost rate base. What about like reproduction cost new, less depreciation or, re, you know, or, or yeah, go ahead. Sure. Uh, another way to calculate, to look at it is, is a, to do a calculation that's called reproduction cost new, less depreciation, better known as RCNLD. What that does is it takes a look at all of the plant that's been put into a into the system and the dates that it was installed. And then it uses an index factor that determines 
what it would cost to replace all that plant at today's dollars. So in other words, if something was put into the ground, a, a piece of pipe put into the ground in, in uh, 1950 and it cost $10,000, after it's indexed, it might cost um, $100,000 or $200,000 in today's dollars to replace it. So that comes up with a different value. A value for an RCNLD uh, calculation is usually higher than a net book value, which is uh, plant less depreciation. But depending on the situation, um, that, that uh, RCNLD value can also be used as de to determine the value of the rate base for that utility. Right, right. Okay, I, I, and I, th I appreciate your explanation of all that because I just wanted to make sure that, that we kind of at least covered that, that there are different ways to figure out what a rate base is. But, um, you know, in, in terms of uh, other unique aspects for investor-owned utilities and rates, you know, there's some kind of like uh, distribution system improvement charges and, 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 you know, things like that. What are just – what are kind of some of the unique uh, – rate issues for investor-owned utilities? Well, um, if anybody's familiar with the electric industry, and if you're ever trying to look at your electric bill, you'll see that there's a, a zillion, seems like anyway, a zillion riders that that you get billed for on your electric bill. You get, you get a, cur a charge for this and for that, and a credit for this and a charge for that. On, on the water side, uh, typically across all the states, there's usually very few surcharges, but one of them, um, and it's a very important one, is, and they have different names in different states, but in Indiana it's called the Distribution System Improvement Charge, or DSIC. And what that does is uh, a utility can, if they spend uh, $50 million on plant improvements, they don't earn a penny of return or recover any depreciation cost on that until they're able to get it into rates uh, through the utility commission. That's done one of two ways, either through a rate case like we've been talking about or through this D6 surcharge program. And in Indiana, the D6 surcharge program is available to utilities and it's available for only plant that's being replaced. It's not for new plant that's serving new customers. So in other words, if you're putting a million dollars into a main replacement project to replace a 80-year-old main, you add, as a utility, you add zero revenue to your stream by doing that. You have the same number of customers paying the same rates until you get that recovered in rates. The D6 surcharge program is an incentive to utilities to replace plant and thus keep their plant in better shape. So in, in Indiana, the D6 recovers replacement mains, services, valves, hydrants, and meters. And it allows the utility to come in once a year to look at all replacement projects that they've completed in those five categories. And it's kind of like a mini rate case, but it's only looking at five sets of asset categories. And it's to be completed by the whole review process. It's to be completed in a 60-day period. So it gives the utilities an incentive to replace plant and it gives them an incentive to replace it and recover it without coming in for a rate case to do so. And in Indiana, the DSIC program has a 10% cap on it. So in other words, once the revenue that's re collected through that DSIC meets a 
10% of their total authorized revenue base, they cannot collect any more money through the DSIC, and the only way that they can recover uh, any of their investments is to come in for a rate case. And the nice thing about that is it forces utilities to come in on a somewhat regular basis to uh, have their rates and all of their costs reviewed by the uh, Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission. And that's that's good for customers. Yeah, and, and that program's not unique to Indiana. I mean, I think it started in Pennsylvania, actually. and it's Pennsylvania. Uh, it's been in place in Indiana since the early 2000s. And a uh, matter of fact, uh, for Indiana American Water, they've uh, just c- completed their 11th DSIC filing and got their new rates for that in uh, March. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, well, Gary, you've been absolutely fantastic. I, I mean, uh, just talking with you about this, I, I, it was a long time coming and it was well worth it. So uh, do you have any parting comments? What, what haven't I asked that, that, you know, you want folks to know about, uh, you know, rates for investor owned utilities? Well, um, one thing that we, we really haven't talked about Dave and I'll cover real quick is a uh, single tariff pricing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of ways once you determine uh, what, uh, a utility should be charging its customers to receive its total revenue. A lot of ways to design rates. Um, if rates are designed and rates, design of rates um, sends a lot of different signals to its customers. In other words, if a if a rate is designed so that if, if a customer uses more water, it gets a lower rate block for the more they use, it's telling the customers that they have water to sell. And that's good for industrial customers and large customers that are using water. In some states like California, where they don't have a lot of water, they have a, a base charge for what a customer should be using at a, at a maximum. And then if you use more than that, the rate goes up. So it costs you more for the more you use. That sends a signal that uh, we don't have a lot of water. And if you want to use it, it's going to cost money. Uh, in Indiana, for the most part, we're blessed with with very good water resources and water supply. Um, Indiana American and Aqua America uh, as well uh, have rates in place that are uh, called declining block rates, whereas the more you use, the less the rate uh, is charged for that larger usage. Um, One of the things that's good for our customers in Indiana at Indiana American Water is we have what's called single tariff pricing. Uh, Indiana American has approximately 300,000 customers and all of those customers, uh, with two small exceptions, uh, about 1% of their customers have a slightly lower volumetric r- block rate, but everybody else pays the same rates for everything, which is good for customers because if you're in the northern part of the state or the southern part of the state, or if you're in Terre Haute on the east or Richmond on the, I mean, Richmond on the east and Terre Haute in the west, uh, you're paying the same rate. So if, if we're talking about what those rates are, they're very easy to understand because everybody has the same rate. You don't have to know exactly where you live to find out what your rates are. And it allows, uh, single tariff pricing allows any investment that's made in that state to be spread amongst all of the customers rather than if a large, a large investment is being made in one specific community, those people don't have to pay in particular for that investment. It's spread across everybody. and. That, that results in um, good rate management for all of its customers. Terrific. Well, Gary, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I thought you did a fantastic job. I really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you the best in your new endeavor at Verdow Regulatory Services.
All right. If there's anything I can do for, the, for you in the future, just make sure you let me know. <laughs> I'll do that. All right. Thanks so much, Gary. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gary Verdow. Uh, I think you can tell from that conversation he is very well-versed in how uh, investor-owned water rates are set. And hopefully you learned something and, and he shed some light on how um, uh, investor-owned water rates are set and what factors go into that. Because I, like I said at the beginning of the show, I think it's a, a really a misunderstood area. Uh, in any event, remember, I'm not going to be around uh, next week, uh, next month, uh, no, excuse me, no podcasts are going to be issued next, next month, uh, in June. And so look for your next podcast in July of 2018. And you can let me, uh, know what you thought about this episode, uh, by leaving a sh- your uh, comments on the show notes. You can do that at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one, two, six. That's thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one, two, six. Let me leave me uh, your comments there. You can also uh, tweet at me. My handle's at DTM1993. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values uh, and would really just love to, uh, to interact with you on uh, water issues out there in, uh, in social media or on the website or however you, however you want to handle that. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me thank you for tuning into the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice further this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.